0: Welcome to the Phase World Podcast, engaging conversations that cross the boundaries between business, art, and the digital world. We are bound. not only to ourselves and to those around and close to us and to humanity in general but we're bound to honor this earth to care for our planet The, the greatest gift is to be able to give it's just huge it is one's duty if you have either the means or the time to serve in some way, to give as generously as you can and to to give your time. If your kids don't become your colleagues partway through, you've essentially been a failure. The bottom of it all is you really, really have to love Two things and more important than the subject almost is the kid. You have to love them all and uh, to give them a sense that they can value themselves, you have to value them first.
1: everybody, this is Fei Wu, and I am here for another episode of the FaZe World Podcast. Today I have a very, very special guest whose name is Polly Chadfield. Polly is a teacher and has been since the 1960s. She's also a poet and winner of the National Endowment for the Humanities Fellowship for her topic, Patterns of Simile in the Divine Comedy. I met her at the Merrill Speaker Series at Commonwealth School. Without revealing her age, you wouldn't believe me even if I told you. Polly radiates positive energy. She loves her students, and nearly everyone in the event across multiple generations have taken classes with her, including my associate producer and life partner, Adam Leffert. For the first time ever, it's a conversation with three people— Good news is that our voices are quite distinct from one another. I don't think you have a hard time to tell who's who. Oh, by the way, if you didn't know anything about the Commonwealth School, they are an independent co-ed day school for grades 9 through 12, enrolling about just 150 students in four grades. They are academically rigorous, catering to bright Curious students who enjoy intellectual adventures in classes often taught at college level. And by the way, they're also very successful. With nearly 75% of the graduating seniors recognized as national merit finalists, semi finalists, or commended students. And some 35% recognized by the AP Scholars Program. For over 20 years, Polly taught various subjects at this very school, including Latin and History. Today, her students walk up to her at this school on the street and tell her repeatedly how she changed their lives forever. Most of them have children, some have college-aged children. I met a few who now work at the New York Times or the Supreme Court. They hugged and kissed Polly as if time never left. As an outsider of Commonwealth School, I had always been curious with their community. So small, yet it creates such synergy decades after people already graduated from the school. At this point, I've had a long-standing history with the Commonwealth School as a podcaster or interviewer who have spoken with a few graduates, including Von Lee, class of 1988, Julia Holloway, class of 1984. By the way, both of them not only remember Polly vividly, but also are involved in the alumni committee at Commonwealth School, where Polly continues to contribute significant effort on a regular basis. Polly took us to so many places in this conversation, and it doesn't stop short at the Commonwealth School. Much of what I learned is about a woman's life who overcame so many hardships while keeping her head up high and didn't forget for a second that she could still be funny, lighthearted, and strong. I also learned about history, what it was like to grow up as a woman in the 50s and 60s. And I thought about how I want to be a parent one day, the value I want to instill in them. First, I want to read to them a lot not just at bedtime. Second, I hope they choose to give back to their community and help people in need. Polly has never stopped doing that. She volunteers at various organizations today, including an after-school program where she teaches underprivileged children how to read and write. It's not possible for me to summarize it all here, and I hope you enjoy this conversation and share with others who might want to listen. If you like this story, you might find just a few others that interest you on FaceWorld. I'm currently putting in some effort in building an online community, so hop over to facebook.com forward slash FaceWorld, and you will see updates from me just about a couple of times a week. Without further ado, please welcome the one and only Polly Chadfield to the World podcast. so happy to be here, Polly, and just walking through your apartment and just looking at all the books and uh, <laughs> make me feel like this this is so alive. i, I give you a whole armful when you leave.
0: <laughs> like,
1: I just, they just collect. Yeah, you know. and, yeah. I, I mean, they're beautiful. And I, as I mentioned before, I grew up in a household full of books and something that is very, um, so very intimate. I feel very, that's very familiar to me. But we met at this wonderful, one of the many wonderful Commonwealth events just a few weeks ago. And I remember when Adam, my co-producer on the show, uh, who's also in the room here with us, mentioned to me, said, Polly is you know, one of my favorite teachers of all time. <laughs> And literally five seconds later, you walked over, tapped on the shoulders and said, I recognize you from the back of your head. <laughs> and and then we exchanged conversation, the busy room for 30 seconds. And I thought to myself, I want to be like you when I grow up. And <laughs> I, you know, I feel like we're all there in people's lives for even a brief moment. There's a very clear purpose. And I've come across another gentleman uh, previously at a job that I had. And Matt Lindley, I said, I want to be like him when I grow up. But then There's you, there's a very special energy and bond. And so thanks so much for having us at your lovely home.
0: Oh, you're dear. When I think of how much my students have given me over the years, a chance to uh, be part of their lives. At um, a crucial moment, I think 10th grade, which I particularly love. that age is when people discover that they're a who and a particular kind of who, and, and it, it's a, it's a
1: privilege to be part of that discovery. Wow. Well, so, uh, Adam, when did you start learning from, uh, I want to say Polly, but really is Miss Chaffield. Oh, come on. <laughs> Polly. I've got to get...
2: I think ninth grade, I ended up studying Latin for seven years. Uh, I wanted to keep going, but they made me take calculus. which, for the record, if you're not going to be an engineer, no, you don't need it in real life, it turns out. Should have kept going. But I I believe it was ninth grade Latin. And also history uh, and art history.
0: Yeah, the renaissance.
2: Yeah, renaissance. Renaissance,
0: Renaissance. yeah. And I didn't have you for English.
2: No. I kind of, then who did? Oh, John Hughes in ninth grade.
0: Yeah.
2: I, I remember a lot of, I guess maybe there were corrections on papers which i passed on to yes. other people. Oh, PGPs. I feel like, yeah. I felt oh. like had an English education, even if not under that rubric, <laughs> under that title.
0: Oh, and uh, when somebody made a mis- the same mistake over and over, mm-hmm. you, you've got to imagine how a teacher gets irritated. Mm-hmm. And uh, John Hughes, instead of saying that he was irritated, he put next to these these mistakes PGPs, which meant
1: poly-grumbles. Charlie yep. mm. Chaplin's rumbles. I feel like I'm a secondhand uh, English learner from you, one of your students in mm-hmm. this case, Adam. I've uh, arrived at this in this country when I was just 16, and my English was considered pretty good, mm-hmm. and I really faked my way through fairly comfortably in China. I would literally just make up English words and grammar; and nobody <laughs> would know. Well, I mean, even English
0: speakers would. The poor people who have to learn English—it's so full of diverse influences. And the way Anglo Saxons conjugated their verbs and the way Latins conjugate their verbs are so different.
1: Mm-hmm. And
0: all of that is feeding into, into English in, in ways that I wonder that ESL people don't just throw up their
1: hands and say, somebody else should do this. My mom is certainly one of yeah. those people who are uh, ready to invent her own grammar. Yeah. Um, but I've benefited so much, and it's so funny that I've known. I've known Adam for 14, uh, nearly 14, 13, 14 years. Mm -hmm. And my English has improved drastically (laughs) over that period of time, including when I was in college and really struggled. I decided that I was, um, not that I was so cool, but since I'm in this country anyway, Mm -hmm. I wanted to learn English with regular American students. So I gave up my privilege to learn with the other ESL students Mm -hmm. and my grades. It was such a struggle, but then, you know, Adam came into my life and, and taught me so much, not just specific words, but about, and the Latin was, my God, if I could just hit a button to say how many times the word Latin even comes up, probably tens of thousands, no joke. Mm-hmm. But he was able to teach me a way of thinking and learning about the language and really having the structure to it, be able to memorize it so much more easily because there's a Latin uh, root to it. Mm-hmm. And then 14 years later, and, you know, I met you, and I realized, oh, no, it's all <laughs> makes sense. <laughs> well,
0: I'll tell you something about me and languages. We had a year in Rome in 1973, 74, with, with all the children. And I had to learn Italian to function, to buy the groceries, to get the children doctor's appointments, to get shoes, God knows what. And... Uh, so I I learned no. by the seat of my pants, and my, my oldest daughter, who was majoring in Italian at Connecticut College, and that year went to the Università per in Perugia for her junior year, and speaks beautiful Italian, was heard to say, "You think mother's speaking Italian until you listen closely." <laughs> 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 I had the song all right, but I didn't have constructions. I just had to learn to to get by
1: in a big hurry. Mm -hmm. But I wonder, you know, I heard this uh, story of yours on YouTube, I think it was recorded in 2014, Mm -hmm. and it was during one of the stand-up sort of moth-like Commonwealth School uh, storytelling sessions. I'm not sure if that video is even on YouTube, but it is. And that was one of my uh, very kind of a a window into who you are, your life. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you told us about the story that happened in 1947. You know, when I when I worked that summer, I worked three summers in a row at
0: the Trap Family Music Camp. I'd gone up the first summer as sort of my younger brother's chaperone. He's, he's very musical, but he had asthma and he couldn't go to a real camp. And my mother thought it would be wonderful to go to this music camp. Well, it turned out that everybody there was sort of middle-aged, either spinsters or... Uh, Older men looking for spinsters. (laughs) And and they were, I mean, they were all singing. They were all directed. The director of the Trap Family group was taking you through a Mozart mass or a Brahms something or another. But um, I rapidly discovered that college students were working in the kitchen and the dormitories. And my little brother discovered the youngest of the Trap Boys. And he went off into the woods with him. And I started working in the kitchen. And we became, we just, I just became very close to the family and was right behind you on the the Dutch cupboard in the middle shelf right there. You see that photograph? Wow. There there I am as a bridesmaid, Erica and Werner's wedding. Wow. That's
1: me. Oh my goodness. (laughs) Wow, it's when you said 1947. It was that's the number I remember because that's the year my dad was born. Yeah, you know, and when I hear that, it's like, wow, you know, all these different moments happening. So I, I
0: had just this wonderful summers being with the family, singing. In between these things, like these ten-day sing fests, there was four days to clean up the place and then to have fun. And we would go climbing Mount Mansfield or go swimming in some waterfall someplace or Mm -hmm. sing with the family as they practiced for concerts. And I remember once we were in the rec hall and I was up on a riser and there was some, in the soprano section, there were others behind me. We were doing a Mozart mass and I was singing better than I had ever sung. (laughs) It was quite wonderful. And because there was this woman behind me with the glorious voice. Mm-hmm. Turned out it was Roberta Peters before she was discovered, but her voice coach had brought her up to visit the family. Mm-hmm. And if you're next to somebody who is trained and can, can open their throat and sing, oh boy, yeah, <laughs> it happens to you sort of momentarily in this most <laughs> wonderful way. That's so
2: true. I had the same experience uh, very briefly. One of our other guests and a friend of mine for over a decade is an opera singer, Barry Alexander, who I've known since the 90s, -hmm. who Faye's now working with, and when we first met. And opera, honestly, I'm really not connected to in any way, Mm -hmm. and I can't even carry a tune. My college roommate has often bragged that I can sing the National Anthem in five or six keys at once. (laughs) Because in school, you know, you're a freshman, you're orientation. I know
0: know all about that.
2: He's now a professional actor and singer, and I can just switch keys in in every few notes. But yeah, yeah, stand this way, breathe this way, and... In my entire life, one note. My friend, he's like, do this, do this, do that. And one operatic note came out of me. And I was so shocked that it all completely came crashing down. But I had that experience even for only that moment.
1: It's true. With, for me, it's like a, a tennis game. I've That's a game I've never, ever mastered. But when I play with someone who knows what he or she's yeah. doing, your game just, and you learn that for, yeah. for life. Yeah. Well, my father was tone
0: deaf. And he used to sing us Harvard football songs. And when I went to my first Harvard football game, I was amazed because the words, those were the words I knew, but that sure wasn't the tune. <laughs> oh, so.
2: so it's the opposite of Italian. You had the tune for Italian, but not the words. He had the words for the songs, but not the now tune. That's right. It all fits together.
1: Uh, so, so Polly, what I wonder what you were like as a little girl, and I'm looking at this picture. You know, what are... Some of the memories that you've had maybe right around that time that make me wonder uh, is this sort of this vast knowledge that you have for Latin, for appreciation, too, for language, for history, for art? And, you know, what made you decide to want to be a teacher and not only a teacher, but, you know, subject matter of oh so many? Oh, my
0: Well, first off, books were part of my childhood. My, our parents read to us every evening. I mean, not just the bedtime stories upstairs in bed, but we were, after dinner, we would be gathered in the living room and be read to them. I, and it was really for the older ones. I was number five in a family of six. And the reading then was for uh, my older brothers and sisters Dickens and whatnot, Jane Austen, whatever, like that. Uh, so I had that. And then I was, um, I went to strict convent school, but it was a very uh, dedicated order of teaching nuns. And we were uh, made to memorize quite a lot, which was poems and things like that, not algebra rules, but uh, lovely bits of text that we could carry with us. Uh, one of the, I remember one of the nuns saying, the things you learn now, you'll be able to say when you're 80. Mm. And... Uh, You may not keep things all through your life, but you'll keep the things you learn earliest. And it's true. And my mother used to make us memorize, too, so that we, we, uh, I've got a a bunch of poems in my head still. And and then I married a teacher right out of college. As a matter of fact, I was young going to college because I'd learned to read when I was four, so this (laughs) made me skip first grade. I was in college when I was 16, Wow! and uh, I met him as a blind date for the Harvard-Yale game when I was a sophomore, and uh, he decided right away he was going to marry me. I gave him up for Lent, (laughs) year after year, (laughs) but to no avail.
1: (laughs) But he knew that he wanted to marry you at the game? He
0: knew that very day of the blind date, he... he, uh, went home and told his parents that he'd met the girl he was going to marry. And I was only just 18. I had not the faintest idea. Mm-hmm. you know, And I lived this very um, sheltered life. I'd never been on a date before I went to college. I didn't even wear a bra. My, <laughs> my first roommate in college was horrified. I was so... <laughs> uh, such a rube. <laughs> but... And so we were married. He was drafted for the Korean War. We, As soon as he got out of basic training, he was sent to Fort Sam Houston to teach, because he was already a teacher. And so he did nothing but teach all his two years of being drafted. And we had children. We had five children. He came back and was teaching at the Gunnery School in, in Connecticut, and then taught out at... Um, in the il- north of Illinois, in Winnetka, and North Shore Country Day. And I did a little Latin tutoring then, because I majored in both English and Latin in college, put I the notion of teaching. But then he died, and I applied to colleges all around, particularly in the Chicago area, but I didn't. My brother, younger brother, encouraged me to apply to Harvard, and I got in. So I came. And was uh, you know the oldest graduate student in my group by a long shot because most of them were fresh out of college. Well, you mean uh, like a master's degree? Yeah, I like- was getting to get a master's degree, mm-hmm. and uh, to where I, I worked on. I didn't get a PhD, but yeah. I passed my orals and I was working on a thesis. In my second year as a graduate student, I met this other aged graduate student. I was having i gotten into a seminar in the sixth book of the Fairy Queen, and uh, the prerequisite was you've read the whole of the Fairy Queen. Well, nobody's read the whole of the Fairy Queen. You read book 10 in, in English, and that's it. So I was reading the Fairy Queen every minute I went across from Widener Library to this restaurant called the University Restaurant, which we all call the Unrest. I sat at the counter. I was reading The Fairy Queen, and my sandwich came, and I pushed the copy over, and there was another copy of The Fairy Queen. And behind it was this nice man who said, I see you're reading The Fairy Queen. (laughs) (laughs) And I said, I'm a widow with five children. (laughs) (laughs) I just, I was so afraid that I'd get to like somebody, and he would get to like me, and he didn't know what I came with. Wow. But that didn't seem to keep him from talking to me. How many showed me pictures of his two kids? He was divorced. His wife had left him, and he had two young children. And uh, we were married the following summer. And he went to teach at Commonwealth School. And I went to be a teaching fellow, uh, which I'd already signed a contract to. In the middle of the second year, he came back from school one day and said, would you like to teach English and Latin at Commonwealth? And I said, would you like me to teach you? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, he said, I wouldn't have brought the message from Mr. Merrill if I hadn't wanted you to. Wow. So that's how I got to teach at Commonwealth School. What year was that when you first That was... I had done... Actually, we had a dear friend, Seymour Alden, who was one of the founding teachers of Commonwealth, who taught the Latin. And in the fall of 67 and into 68, he was quite sick. He was dying, actually, of pancreatic cancer. Mm -hmm. And I took his Latin classes. Um, (laughs) It was able to fit in and around what I was doing at Harvard because it was teaching expos and I could fiddle with the schedule at Commonwealth, not with the Harvard schedule, mm-hmm. and teach. So I had had taught so Charles knew I could teach Latin if he if he wanted another Latin teacher. And they so they had somebody for a year in between with, who was not very comfortable. Mm-hmm. I don't know whether it was the Ethos of Commonwealth, or or what? But anyway, he decided it was not for him, and Charles sent the message, home by my Charlie," and so there I was, and that was so. That was the spring of. It must have been the spring of sixty-eight because he was not coming. That guy was not coming back.
1: Wow, sixty-eight.
0: Yeah. You started. Yeah. So I was already involved in Commonwealth life, you know, coming coming up almost all seven children sleeping in the barn for Hancock and all of that so I was very much you know in there already going to plays and all this stuff but I only knew you guys from the outside not the in.
1: is so you went from raising five children on your own to now a household of seven children. Mm -hmm. And what was that dynamic like? I don't know how old your children were at the time versus your Uh, husbands.
0: Charlie, when Charlie and I were married, Roger was five. My stepson Hugh was six. Peter was seven. My stepdaughter Sarah was eight. Callie was 10. And Barbara was 12 and Michael was 13. So it was... Little kids and, and a teenager, two teenagers, really. Charlie was a saint. He was an absolute saint and a dear, dear, precious man. I remember. Wow. Just love. No kissing in the corridors was his...
2: <laughs> <laughs> Which was often obeyed. Not completely, but... Uh.
0: Well, that's what it... I mean, that, you know, I, I... I would swing by his office and just. Oh, even you, mean him you guys? Not yes, you meant us. us? No, no, <laughs> us guys. And Charlie would say, "No kissing in the car." And
2: I was to keep you guys under control.
0: That's right. <laughs> to give a, give a good example. Oh. Oh, oh, Wow! Don't you remember Eric courting Judith? Were you there then? No.
2: I remember them being a couple. Oh. There's two two English teachers. Yeah. Um,
0: well. They they uh,
2: actually yeah I I there remember, was a certain the, amount yeah. of kissing
0: in the corridors with them. I remember the end very, of it. Very, yeah. very precious. We were all watching this love affair
1: begin to blossom. <laughs> <laughs> well, but before we move on to I have so many questions for oh, Commonwealth okay. School and you know, I've uh, I've known Adam for a long time, but I have not been really deeply involved with the Commonwealth until the maybe the summer spring of 2011. Mm-hmm. And the reason was because I started hosting like an art workshop, which turned into a summer internship for high school students, mm-hmm. particularly around design. And mm-hmm. that's when I met. Larry for the first time, Mm -hmm. I decided to combine students from Newton North High School with Commonwealth School, Mm -hmm. which was literally down the street from the office I was working Mm -hmm. at at Sapient, Mm -hmm. and uh, just kind of open up their eyes to say, like, don't be scared. In some cases, don't be ashamed to be an artist. You know, Mm -hmm. express yourself. These are all these options. Look, at these are real artists. Mm -hmm. They have jobs. They're getting paid well. But that's basically kind of my my way into getting to know the community. Uh, and I was just so in awe, like in so many ways, because it's such a eclectic group of people that I got to interact with, even though the place is so small that most people don't even know that even today there are maybe just a little over a hundred students. 150 140, maybe.
0: 143.
1: It's the smallest, I mean, one of the smallest schools that I've ever come across. and. You know, from 1968 till, um, I believe that maybe you retired right around 1990.
0: 1990. uh, In June of 1990, at graduation, he retired. And I stayed on for half a year as mentor to a a young English teacher and did some expas and stuff, but not just, I was just in the background. Judith had just come on and Charlie felt it was very important that we both leave together. And not have me be there to be somebody to be complained to about how the new head wasn't doing this <laughs> or that, you know. And he was right, though I hated it. I did. I I really did not like to stop teaching. I still miss it. Try to do. I'm tutoring now at the school where Barbara is a librarian because I miss it it's still. It's wonderful. Well, where where are you tutoring right now? She. Uh, I'm tutoring at the community. Charter School of Cambridge. It's Cambridge's only charter school. Uh And my oldest daughter, class of 71, is librarian there. Uh And um, it's 99% under the poverty, no, 99% minority, 97% under the poverty line. And they have to work like Trojans. They take triple math when they come in in sixth grade. They have this drop everything and read program and uh, all these these honors reading groups, I did one of those last spring, but they they have um, after school, high school and middle school study halls every Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and I go in and, you know, it's just like the homework project is school. Mm-hmm. They stay and then they can have pizza or something and then they do a little more work and then head for home. My problem is Remembering names, because names have changed in the last 20 years. What are some Um, of the names before versus now? Well, I think the names before are names like Adam and Seth and Tom and John. And I have names like Horace. Whom I taught tutor to letter
2: should me. be familiar,
0: <laughs> right? Well, that that sticks in my head. But some of these others, I had a wonderful girl I worked with a lot last year, whose name was Chris Nolly. There was somebody in my reading group whose name was Sequoia. That was I could connect. But some of these names are so off the wall mm-hmm. to this Anglo-Saxon ear that it's very hard to. Tired to
1: remember them. Why? Well, I'm so glad you said that because I've been struggling with names at work, outside of work. It just yeah. there's so many names that I never learned in English textbooks when I was yeah. in China, and I don't even know were spe- <laughs> they. They're the same name, but they spell differently, like Christina with a Y, and you're mm-hmm. like, why would you do that? But <laughs> yeah, Jacqueline with W's and things like that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: But they're you know, what they need is half tutoring and half a listening ear or, or an arm around the shoulder you know and to give them a sense that it's possible because they are working so hard mm-hmm. and it's a wonderful school that they, they've had seven graduations now and every single kid has gone to college they haven't all stayed because they don't have the money mm-hmm. you know and if they don't get a full scholarship they have to work and then it's so hard to balance and mom is working two jobs so they work harder and then they don't, can't get the college work done. But they were prepared
1: enough to be accepted at college. I think what's really stunning is um, what's incredible uh, to be a teacher. And I remember when I, I was in school in middle school and high school in China, we have we have Teachers' Day, by the way, which I was so surprised to find out that that doesn't exist in this country. And it's September tenth, conveniently after school starts and. I remember in in a classroom of 50 students and when the teacher asked, who do you want to be when you grow up, nearly 100 percent will raise their hand to say they want to be teachers. And the reason is because I think there is that, I guess, preconception of if you are a teacher, whether your parents, you know, your parents read to you. But then when you step on a stage, you're instantaneously influencing young adults across entire classroom and kind of distilling a message, a, a, an emotion, whatever that may be, or hope, you know, and then they're able to carry that on. I, I think it's kind of magical. I mean, have you thought about that at all? And does it occur to you? No, I, I somehow I didn't think
0: of myself, particularly as a figure of authority in the sense of, of discipline. I didn't think I knew more than my students. And the thing is, that I really wanted them to know what I knew because it gave me such pleasure, for one thing, to know that sort of stuff and to, have be, to see how many windows get opened when you know this and to watch the windows getting opened for people.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think what you described is kind of like making learning not just fun, but a way of approaching how to problem solve in a way that, you know, Adam has just shared how many books, I mean, I'm, you know, how many books he ended up uh, reading and then even into college to realize, wow, I better stop. It's like, this becomes, <laughs> you know, well, what was your, I mean, how did it impact you, you know, into your adulthood?
2: Many um, ways. going back a little bit, actually, to some of the things that Polly said, I can't claim a difficult background in economic sense, but I think just being that age, being 15, which is magical, but sometimes magical in a spell cast on a sense <laughs> versus magic of discovery, the different, the sort of warring sides. And I do specifically remember, I told Fetus already, your hand on my shoulder when it came time for the Latin APs, because it was sort of this pride. Commonwealth is not snobby proud in a, in like a fancy clothes sense or, or in a, looking down at other people's sense, but in a hard work sense and kind of going that extra mile, talk about reading the entire book. So I don't know if I get the numbers right, but was it one, two, four, and six of the Aeneid that everybody else read? And so the advanced placement exam comes up and Mrs. Chatfield says to us, and you're going to take it. And I'm thinking, no, I'm not going (laughs) to take that because it's 12 books, right? If I remember correctly. And you put. remember just remember that moment, which is, I guess, 35 years ago, you put your hand on my shoulder and you're like, Oh, yes, dear, you are. (laughs) And then I realized the spell is cast. Yes, dear, I am. And that what I know you know, but maybe aren't saying is at that age, I think everything is chaotic for everybody. So instilling that hope in somebody that comes forward and the joy of the materials and, and carrying that forward, both the stuff that we read and that is kind of a jumping off point for things to read on your own in the future. I remember the integrity of the primary sources, but being able to feel like You've got, you know, in my sense, not a control of the whole canon, but a sense of it. So almost that's that's a skeleton. And then as you go forward in your life, you can build on that.
0: Yeah, and then you can trust your own opinion. That's why the primary source is that you, you have a right to think about those things as well as some scholar who's written a book about them. And and that's part of the learning who you were. That mm-hmm. what I was talking about, why I love the tenth grade, so because you really were, fashioning your yourselves at that moment, mm-hmm. and to be a part of that, and to see people's faces light up when they discover they discovered something on their own, mm-hmm. is wonderful.
1: Absolutely, and I almost sense that there is an obligation. I'm speaking uh, from my own experience as a third generation, uh, really in this in this case, that I sense that Adam has, and, and perhaps many of your students, sends an obligation to pass it on to people that they know, you know, people who are close to them, people they encounter, and. You know, for instance, the reason Adam um, has been a, a huge help on my endeavor of trying to be a podcaster, uh, kind of sharing stories of what we call the sung and unsung heroes. Mm-hmm. And unsung heroes are so busy doing what they do. People very much like yourself, and you don't have necessarily the time or energy or resources to really broadcast. Me, if I had at my own TV station, I would have followed you um, to the school and to all these like after school programs that you're doing because somehow people can relate to that. And I've heard so many stories and I was so touched by. Um, A very similar story about this teacher, I believe it's somewhere in India or Mexico, these stories of women, you know, after they retire at around age 60, well into their 80s and 90s, sometimes they open up their apartment and invite these students to come in and read, and then they grow up. It just, like, draws like tears to my eyes, you know. That's lovely. Yeah.
2: Yeah, While is recovering (laughs) (laughs) emotionally, I'm going to mention something to, to the audience and to the group, because... I don't think it would cross Faye's mind to know to ask it, but I want to say it before I sort of lose the opportunity. I want to make sure I don't get choked up, see if we can keep it all together here. <laughs> and I'll pick it up from there. In that time when you talk about the windows opening or sort of mm-hmm. to me kind of watching the lights come on, I knew I wasn't all of those things. And honestly, I'm still trying to figure out which of those <laughs> emotions, ideas, and warring forces I am. But what I remember, which could bring us to discussion of the church or social service or social service organizations. Mm-hmm. But what I, as somebody who really didn't know what I was talking about or or where to go, was a very rare, almost unseen, deep moral sense with no, what I would call, judgment. So that, and I remember, and as listening to things you've mentioned to Faye and thinking back on what, you know, the challenges and kind of turmoil at that time, that everyone knew, something that we wouldn't verbalize at that age. I remember the questions and I remember the answers. And I remember coming to you once with something that I felt was a moral question. And I said, okay, is, is this right or is this wrong? And to this day, I remember your exact answer, which was, don't ask if it's right or wrong. Ask if it's wise. And I instantly knew, yeah, it probably wasn't wise. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so that, that sense, to be honest, to be frank, gave me a better sense of religious people. Because I had kind of a finger-waggy impression at that time Mm -hmm. that there was kind of like the librarian shushing everybody and don't do this and don't do that but a a sense of morality and religious morality that really came from a humanism and humanity as opposed to a you know a more santa claus view of you know who's good and who's bad and that Mm -hmm. that's that's where i got to appreciate religion more or people who had Devote a lot of their lives to to a religious life or having mm-hmm. that be part of their life. So I don't know mm-hmm. kind of how to work into the questions, but I know you do a lot of work with social service organizations, and I know you have um, Charlie was a deacon in the church, right?
0: Well, he was at, he was on the vestry of the okay, church. Vestry. So that's,
2: the, that's the
0: Episcopal, and well, that is something that I came from my parents who both served on boards of various sorts, and I just thought that was something you you just did when. <laughs> It was a sign of being grown up, that it was just something you did. And now I'm distressed because many, many people in their 50s and 60s who should be serving on boards of... I'm on a board of a family services organization and two, actually, in in Maine. We can't get people to, to serve. And why i'm I'm not sure, but but I think something something has been lost, that sense that it is one's duty, if you have either the means or the time to serve in some way, to give as generously as you can, and to to give your time. Mm-hmm. If I'm only for myself, what am I? You know We are bound, and not only to ourselves. And to those around and close to us, and to humanity in general. But we're bound to to honor this earth, to care for our planet.
1: Yeah, I think I think social service has been such a theme on my podcast as well. I've interviewed people across all ages and. Uh, a couple of folks I can, and there's one who is the president of Digitas, and there's one gentleman CEO of General Digital. Mm-hmm. And, you know, each one of them uh, have contributed and actively involving not just themselves, but people from their company mm-hmm. uh, to be involved for, you know, uh, Horizon for Homeless Children. And uh, both Alan and I are involved in Friends of um, Boston Homeless. And there is that tremendous joy when you realize that what you do isn't just for money and it's your time and your energy spent that's really contributing to the greater goods. And that just, there's an indescribable amount of joy. I think of people truly try it and they will be able to see it for themselves and it's addictive.
0: Yes. The, the greatest gift is to be able to give. It's just huge. And, uh,
2: there may be some hope. I'm um, not to say anything against my generation. So we have uh, nephews that are millennials that are like mm-hmm. early twenties and One, Sam, who I don't know if he's been he's been involved in many podcast related things, but has sort of pushed back now that he's working at Sapien doing marketing, saying, well, millennials aren't all the same. There's no there's no specific kind of millennial. But one thing I've heard about that group as a group is maybe kind of the 60s are coming back, even though some of it is, you know, hashtag activism, some of it's a little bit shallow that there is a deep sense of caring you know, if you look at the Bernie Sanders support, whether or not yeah. he'd actually be a good president, he certainly seems to care and certainly seems to be trying. Yeah. That. So I guess a two-part question. One is, I think there may be some, you know, the 80s was stereotyped as greedy. In the 90s, you know, you know, a little bit better. And then different economic times, 2003, 2008, mm-hmm. made it mm-hmm. difficult for people to be generous. Yeah. Maybe these people that were disenfranchised worse, dying industries, auto workers, coal miners. Yeah. Uh, but a couple, sort of a common a question. One is, Maybe this next generation is naturally a little more socially conscious. They certainly mm-hmm. seem to be. And in the years that you were teaching, I know they're universal. One of the reasons we read the thousand-year-old things is they were multi-hundred years, to appreciate that people are the same. But on the flip side of that, have you noticed shifts or changes as you're still teaching between what the students and kids were like through those years and and decades? Do you think there have been, have you noticed shifts in their spirit or focus or personalities?
0: Well, I tell you, it was pretty exciting in the late 60s and early 70s, which was all the Vietnam time. And we were so afraid for our kids who wanted to go out on the the common and protests and whatnot, and and, uh, are the ones who lived around the square and were in there wanting to protest and, and you know, one, one was both sympathetic to their passion for things and terrified for their lives. I remember once going out to dinner with Charlie. I was on a Sunday evening with some friends in Cambridge, some professorial friends, and we stayed talking there until about 2.30. And I said, Charlie, we're never gonna get up tomorrow <laughs> if we don't go. But, you know, we were all worried about the kids. And then that seemed to, you know, with the with the end of the, the war and the sort of the disillusionment of the Nixon presidencies and Watergate and all of that, that sense of being involved in in Deep social issues sort of disappeared. People were saving the whales and stuff like that, which was all very good. But it was it it it, it weren't so passionate about it. <laughs> and. and You know, when somebody got up to make an announcement about saving the whales, there would be groans.
2: Here it it comes again.
0: (laughs) Yes, she's got a bee in her bonnet about the whales. Then I, you know, I left school just at a time when there was going to be a new sort of political wave. The last year I was at school... I did a half course in the history of Islam because I thought that was something that people really ought to know a little more about. I didn't realize we were about to get into war in Kuwait and that it was going to be so vitally important, but I did have a sense that part of the world was was in turmoil. So I didn't get into the generation that absolutely had to go into finance, (laughs) fortunately. Maybe I would have saved some of them from the, <laughs>
1: from the pit. So, Boy. Um, what about the students in the uh, in the 80s? I Now I think about it. I recently interviewed um, Ann Spalter. And specifically, she mentioned, I think she's probably in a similar class, um, graduation classes, Adam. She's mm-hmm. now an artist. And then she did mention, early on in her career, I'm trying to calculate, that would be around mid-80s, I guess, mm-hmm. mid to late-80s, she felt... Necessary to get into banking and finance and how just absolutely miserable she was for those couple of years before she kind of changed course and became an an artist. And and now I feel like for my generation, you know, graduating around mid 2000, uh, 2005, six, and then the generation after me, there's a huge shift from what I could observe from I gotta go to Wall Street. I have to do this, this, and that. and make my million dollar before I turn thirty. I feel like all that somehow has more or less vanished. Me? Wonderful. <laughs> Wonderful. <laughs> I love it too. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. It was interesting
0: when I mean, I, because quite a number Myra Pachi went in the film. Sean started to write. There were there were a number in your class who were
1: were. Uh, Went that way already. I wonder what is it like to teach not only one highly intellectual kids coming from highly intellectual families whose parents are incredibly powerful. <laughs> you know, what was it like to teach, particularly these kids at Commonwealth? Was it? I mean, it doesn't doesn't appear to me that you're in, you're intimidated by that at all. <laughs> well, i I never thought about it. <laughs> they didn't know what I had to teach them, so.
0: There they were. They were. They were ready. And, and uh, the kinds of things they ask and the kinds of things they'd like you to find out more about are stimulating you mm-hmm. too to to hunt for things and look up special things for them to read or whatever. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's a two-way street. Two-way. Teaching is definitely it's not handing stuff down. It's collegial. If your kids don't become your colleagues
1: partway through, you've essentially been a failure. Wow. Yeah. And You just answer kind of my next question, which is, I, I wonder, what was that, clearly, you know, your teaching kind of, uh, it's it staying with them, with, with them, with your students, with generations, with their children as well. Um, what are some of the things that you think about in terms of being a, a successful teacher or having successful students? What what do they mean to you?
0: I think that at the bottom of it all is you really, really have to love two things, and more important than the subject almost is the kid. You did. You have to. You have to love them all, and and uh, to give them a sense that they can value
1: themselves, you have to value them first. Yeah, that part is is very. It's so true. Actually, I was just thinking that. Um, we Adam and I both uh, we met at Taekwondo school, and over the years we actually um come across a lot of kids who were um, who were adopted by these lovely parents and then I talked to them about literally how old were the kids and they became part of the family, even as a tender age of like eight months a year old, because they were neglected mm-hmm. literally it, it produces such trauma in their lives, and these American parents are trying to trying to fix that in a way mm-hmm. we're trying to influence that and it's really yeah. challenging i was so fascinated by what you said just now about the interior belief of yourself you know recently we got into alan watts and i'm just every word coming from that man and it's it just so fascinating to me because like you said we are reaching to we're getting to know who we truly are what is our fullest self and you we are constantly told by, you know, I'm a daughter, I'm not yet a mother, mm. and I'm not a sister, I'm the only child, but mm. I have so many roles for these people. Mm. And so much of that is reflected upon me to say, that's who you are, Faye. But who am I really, you know? Yeah. And that, that part is so powerful.
0: I mean, it's the work of a lifetime to become a, who you are. Uh, if you're lucky, the way I have been and blessed.